that, we're going to jump back into the Word of God. We are going to continue in Mark chapter 3 today, which we've been in for the last couple weeks, as we are going through the Gospels. If you're newer here or a guest, we are going through the Gospel story of Jesus' life, but we are trying to do so chronologically rather than just go through one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. We are trying to go through all four in a chronological way. And so last week we finished with the story of Jesus healing a man with a withered hand, which should have been a joyous occasion except for the fact that Jesus healed him on the Sabbath day. The Pharisee scribes were so enraged that he broke their own interpretation of the Sabbath law that they went and started to hold counsel with some of their greatest enemies, the Herodians, in order to try to destroy Jesus. From this story and from so many that we've covered in the past couple weeks and months, one thing is abundantly clear. Jesus is claiming far more than just being a prophet or a rabbi. Jesus is claiming that he's more than a teacher. He's more than a good guy who teaches morals. He is claiming something far greater because he claims the authority to forgive sins, which only God can do. He claims to be the bridegroom of the church that they have been waiting for for generations. He claims that he has authority even over the Sabbath law. So his claim is something far greater. He comes and he very clearly is telling the people that he is the God of the universe who has come in flesh. That he is the Son of God who dwells amongst his own creation. And this whole story in Mark's stories, the vignettes that quickly pass through, line up with all these controversial statements that he is making. And yet it's abundantly clear he is saying who, who he truly, truly is. In one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite books by one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis says this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. If you ever need a reason to read C.S. Lewis, that line by itself, man, he is brilliant, and he points out this truth. 
like Professor Lewis says, Jesus does not leave open the option to us that he was just a nice moral teacher. And that all the people that he's interacting with in these scriptural stories, they have to face this reality of who he says he is and what they are going to do with that truth. And the same is true for us today. We read these stories and we have to come to a conclusion. And your conclusion from these stories cannot be, Jesus was a nice moral guy. Because if he was lying about who he actually is, then he's not a good moral teacher. He's a liar or a lunatic. Or he's exactly who he says he is, and he's the Lord God of the universe. Moving forward. After Jesus heals this man with the withered hand, and the situation with the Pharisees explodes, Jesus tries to withdraw to get some time alone with his disciples and rejuvenate. But as we're going to see, it's not that easy when multitudes of people have witnessed you doing miraculous things. It's not easy to withdraw and be by yourself. So if you have a Bible or device, open up to Mark chapter 3. We're going to read at first just verses 7 through 12. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he's told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Now notice this. The crowds around Jesus now are so large, thousands of people, that they're coming, and they're coming in from cities from all over the place. And notice this. The crowds are so large that Jesus is worried they're going to crush him. So he tells his disciples, we need to have a boat ready so we can create a little barrier between us and the crowds. It also acts as a natural acoustic. The water bounces his voice, and so more people can hear him, and so it's kind of double. One, don't get crushed. Two, more people can hear you. Both good things. The brokenness of creation is running to the feet of Jesus. And in a world that is completely full of those who are broken, this can be extremely overwhelming. Even demons are crying out from amongst the crowds that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, and he shuts them up. And now Mark's gospel takes a turn. We, we see all these things that he's done. We see him go out... And now he's preaching to the crowds. But then there's this kind of weird twist in the middle of the story. As Mark does, he goes from thing, everything is immediately, everything is the next thing. And now we suddenly turn to Jesus calling from amongst the disciples 12 apostles. Right? One thing we might not realize as we read this story, we're now a year into 
Jesus' public ministry, and he's just now going to officially call these 12 apostles. And so he does so, Mark tells us, in verses 13 through 19. And he, Jesus, went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So Jesus eventually does actually get away to withdraw, but he has to go all the way up a mountain to do so. In one of the other Gospels, it tells us that he was up there all night long. Luke tells us he prayed all night and then called his disciples to him. And you might wonder what the difference between disciple and apostle is. A disciple is anybody who is following somebody. You could have a disciple. Be a little weird nowadays. Like, this is my disciple. But you could have a disciple, somebody who just follows you around. But an apostle, the word apostle literally means to be sent out. And so the disciple follows, but the apostle is trained up and then sent out to proclaim the message of their master. And so these men, these are the ones that God is calling, Jesus is calling, to not just be his followers, but to be the ones that he will train to then send into the world to preach the gospel all over the world. Jesus chooses 12 that he will train to be sent out ones. And if you read through this list, as we're going to do, it is not exactly the group of men that you would have said, there's the best of the best. There is my alpha team of guys that are going to go out and change the world. And yet Jesus chooses these men, not because of what they have to offer him, but because what he has to offer them and because of who he is going to turn them into. He starts with Simon, who we've talked about a lot. Simon, who becomes Peter, a man who is known for being impetuous impatient, argumentative, and violent. I have no idea what any of those things are like. A man who would ultimately deny even knowing Jesus three times, and yet Jesus sees more under the surface and uses a man like this to become one of the primary leaders of the early church. He even writes some of the books of the New Testament. Eventually, according to our traditional accounts, Peter, after preaching the gospel all over the world, is hung upside down on a cross because he did not feel worthy to even die in the same manner that his Lord died in. Somehow God takes a man like Peter and turns him into this great apostle. James and John, who are called Boanerges because they are the sons of 
Zebedee, but then Jesus calls them the sons of thunder because they also seem to be a little violent because there are some enemies of Jesus, and they're like, Jesus, you want us to just call down thunder on them? And Jesus is like, take it easy, sons of thunder. Right? So that's their nickname forever. And yet, again, Jesus sees more in them. And they, along with Peter, become part of the innermost circle of Jesus' life. Acts chapter 12 tells us that James is killed by King Herod with a sword as Herod is persecuting the church. And somewhat ironically, his brother John ends up being the one apostle who lives long enough to die a death of old age, but only after watching his Lord, all of his friends, all of his apostolic, nailed it, that was so loud, sorry, apostolic brothers be killed. And he writes five books of the New Testament. Andrew was Peter's brother, once had been a apostle of John the Baptist. We don't know a whole lot about him, but except for one great thing we know about Andrew is every time he's talked about in the Bible, he is bringing somebody to Jesus. He is the one who brings Simon Peter, his brother, to Jesus. And there's other stories of Andrew just kind of always being like, you know what, you need to meet Jesus. Let's go, let's go find Jesus. It's one thing I love about Andrew. According to church historians, Eusebius in origin, Andrew went on to preach in the areas that we now call Ukraine and Romania and Russia. And he too was crucified for his faith. Philip, another disciple we don't know a lot about. Unfortunately, all we really know about Philip is that he was the one who, when Jesus said, let's feed 5,000 people, Philip says, we don't have the food for that. That's about it. (laughs) But somehow still Jesus saw in him a man who should be following him and become an apostle. And church tradition tells us that he too traveled up into Greece and Syria and was ultimately crucified for preaching the gospel. Bartholomew, who's also called Nathaniel, he was the one who questioned if anything good could possibly come out of Nazareth. So he's like the original doubter of Jesus, saying like, that guy's from Butte. He can't be (laughs) anything too good. Although he goes on to preach the gospel, and tradition tells us He goes into India and Armenia before he, too, is martyred for the gospel. Matthew, who was called Levi, we've talked extensively about him the last couple weeks. A Jewish man who was a Roman tax collector amongst the most hated of all men in Israel, and yet he's called by Jesus to be an apostle. And after Jesus' death, he stays and preaches to the Jewish community for a long time before he then travels, history tells us he actually goes down into Ethiopia where he is killed by an enraged king for the gospel. Thomas, who I love, but he's universally known as Doubting Thomas because he wasn't with the disciples when they first saw Jesus after he was resurrected. And Thomas is a bit like me, practical, 
And he says, I'm not going to believe until I see Jesus myself. And I see the wounds in his hands and his feet. And eventually he does. And when he does, Thomas has this amazing moment where he's the first one who says, my Lord and my God. Not just my Lord, not just my master, but God of the universe speaking about Jesus. Thomas, also it's believed, traveled into India, preached the gospel for many years, and was martyred with a spear. James, the son of Alphaeus, who has the unfortunate name James the Lesser, uh, but just because he's younger, but it would be a bummer to be like always known as the Lesser. Like, I'm just not as good. But he's the Lesser. He's probably the disciple that we know the least about, probably just because there were so many different Jameses. But church historians think that he was the James that eventually went down into Egypt and was either crucified or stoned to death. Thaddeus, also known as Judas the Zealot, uh, another man given to violence. The zealots were groups of political assassins that hated Rome so much that they would make vows like, I'm not going to eat again until I murder Caesar. Like they, all kinds of crazy things like that. And yet Jesus calls Judas the zealot uh, to follow him. Eventually he is uh, preaching in modern day Lebanon where he is killed with an axe. If you see uh, paintings of Thaddeus or Judas the Zealot, he will often be holding an axe because of that fact. Simon the Canaanite is another zealot, another would-be assassin. He, and, he eventually travels to what is today Great Britain and is eventually also crucified for his troubles. And then we all know Judas Iscariot. Which if you wonder what Iscariot means, it's not some fancy term for betrayer. It means he's from Iscariot, the city. And, uh, but he is the one who Jesus knowingly chooses to be one of his apostles, knowing ultimately that Judas will betray him. This ragtag bunch of fishermen, political zealots, regular guys, and a tax collector, end up being the apostles of Jesus. If that doesn't give you hope that God can use you and God can use me, I don't know what else could. Because he chooses from amongst all of the people of Israel this group of men. And yet so often we think to ourselves, I have nothing to offer God. What could I possibly do? What good am I to God? What could he do with me? It's not about what we have to offer the Lord. It is about what the master can do with any tool in his hand. I mean that both ways. Nobody? Okay, that's all right. If you give me a truck full of wood and a truck full of professional tools, I might be able to build you a fire. Maybe. But if you give the same truck full of wood and tools to someone like Sean or someone like Larry, they can build you a home. They can build you custom furniture. They can build you cabinets that fit just right. 
They could build you a rustic kitchen table that people in Bozeman will pay insane amounts of money for because it looks old, but it's not. It's not about the raw resources. It is about what the master of the resources can do with them. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not about the men that Jesus chose. It's about what Jesus did with them. We're going to take a look at a couple more things in Mark 3 as we finish today. We're going to read the rest of the chapter, but I'm going to mess with the order a little bit. Hopefully I don't lose you. But the order of the rest of Matthew uh, has some big pieces that I want to bring together. And so we're going to start with reading verses 22 through 27 And then later we'll come back to 20 and 21. Verses 22 through 27 say this. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, And by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself then the house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Okay, a couple of ideas here. The scribes come and they make an accusation against Jesus. Did you catch their accusation? They say they can no longer deny what Jesus is doing is amazing. They can no longer deny that he is doing miraculous things, and so they make an accusation. He's getting his power from the devil. That's how he does the things he does. And Jesus responds to him, and I love this, he, he responds just in kind of cold logic. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? I'm traveling around casting out demons, casting out Satan, and you're saying that my power is of Satan? How can a house divide against itself? How am I a demon myself if I'm casting out the demons? I would be working against myself. That's ridiculous. But especially I want you to notice verse 27, because it's incredibly interesting to me. He says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. What the heck does that mean? He's talking about Satan, and then all of a sudden he's like, A strong man is in a house. Like, what? Jesus is telling them, and he's telling us, that he is the stronger man that comes into the house of the strong man who was the devil. The devil is the prince of this world, and the devil had reign over this world, and he, the people, the broken people, were his goods, and Jesus comes in and he binds the devil. How does he do that? He has victory over the devil's temptations. He doesn't give in to the devil. So he comes in, he binds the devil, and then he takes what the devil thought he owned, 
for himself. It's kind of a weird connect because we're talking about Jesus going in and like binding somebody and stealing things. But his, his point is he is the stronger man. The one who is greater than the devil. They're saying, you're the devil. And he's saying like, I, the devil's nothing. I am the stronger man. Okay, so back to verses 20 and 21, and jump ahead. Right after that, we're going to read 31 through 35. This is about Jesus' family. This, this is fascinating to me. I'll tell you, I tell you guys all the time, if you read the Bible over and over and over again, you'll see things you've never seen before. Verses 20 through 21 just appeared. I'm telling you. I've read the Bible a bunch of times. I've never seen these verses. Like, they weren't there before. Okay? Just kidding. They were. I didn't see them. Verse 20 through 21. Then he went home. Right? So he goes back up into Capernaum, which is their home kind of base for the time. Then he went home, and the crowds gathered around again so that they could not even eat. And when his, talking about Jesus, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. His own family is saying he's insane. Skip down to verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, like I said, it's crazy. I don't remember ever reading verse 20 and 21. This is fascinating. Jesus has brothers. He has brothers that he shares an earthly mother with. Half-brothers. And it would appear that they come and try to lay hold of him in the midst of his ministry, and, and they're telling people he's lost his mind. This dude is out to lunch. So even his own earthly shared DNA family don't believe in him. Don't believe in what he's doing. And so that makes the next part not that surprising to me. Because we understand this. He, he understands loneliness. He understands sorrow. He is acquainted with grief. And there's got to be something that is so sorrowful when you realize, even as God in the flesh, that the people that you share human DNA with don't believe you and think you've lost it. They call him out of his mind. And so this next part, when he says, Who are my mother and my brothers? Parts of his own family don't even understand the work of the kingdom of God that he is doing. Now, he's not disrespecting his family. One of the last things he does on the cross is make sure that his mother will be taken care of. He's not being disrespectful. He's just making a point that he's here for a purpose. And his purpose is single-minded. It is the kingdom of God. And if people are not on that track with him, then they are not his real true family. It's the people that are around him 
Here are my mother and brothers and sisters. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my, bro- and my mother. Now, this is challenging to maybe many of you. And I'm going to say this, and this may be even controversial, but I believe it to be true for me in my life. The people that I've surrounded myself with and God has brought into my world are the most important relationships that I have outside of my home with my wife and children. It's not extended family. It's not cousins. It's, it's, it's the people that I'm doing life with and that I share my worldview with and I share a passion for the kingdom of God with. Maybe you've heard people use the saying that blood is thicker than water. And people may use that as, let's be honest, people use it as manipulation at times. To just say, like, I'm your family. You should care more about me than this. But did you know that that saying is completely misquoted? That that's not the saying at all? That the saying is actually the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. So that saying, even in its original form, is saying the exact opposite of what people claim that it is. It's not saying that if you share DNA, that's the closest thing. It's saying that those who you share covenant with, and in our case, the blood of the covenant of Jesus Christ, that those relationships are more important than who you share the water of the womb, who you share DNA with. If you share my conviction that the kingdom of God through the work of Jesus Christ is the most important aspect of our lives, then I have far more in common with you than I do with a lot of people that I share DNA with. I believe that's what it means to be the church. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. And so your church family, the people that you live life alongside and pursue the kingdom of God, those are some of the most important relationships in your life. Now listen, I'm going to finish today with verses 28 through 30 because I think they're important and I think that they are some of the most misunderstood verses in the whole Bible. So if you've checked out because I've been preaching for 30 minutes, and you're starting to get warm, uh, then maybe maybe wiggle it out a little bit. Do something. Come back to me, okay? Don't miss this. This is going back to the story of the accusations that the Pharisees make against Jesus, but it's bigger than that. Okay, so verse 28. Jesus is speaking. And he says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. I have talked to a bunch of people who are concerned that they are unsavable by God. 
because of something that they have said or done in the past. I want you to hear this, okay? I have talked to people who think that somehow they have committed a sin by something they've said or done in the past that they think is beyond the scope of the salvation of Jesus Christ. That does not exist. You are not the exception. You are not the one person who's so horrible that Jesus won't save you. Now, I understand why people say this, because they see the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and they might say, you don't know the things I said about God at another point in my life. I said God was evil. I said the Holy Spirit was evil. I said, like these men, that the work of God was evil. Or whatever it is, or, or you were part of some cult that said some horrible chants, or whatever, whatever it is. First of all, there is nobody who is outside the grace of God. I want you to take a breath right now, everybody. If you have the ability to do that, then you still have the ability to repent and turn away from those things and turn back to Jesus. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is hardening your heart unto your dying breath, refusing to acknowledge the Holy Spirit's conviction and and pulling you towards God. But as long as you have breath in your lungs, you can still turn back to Jesus and repent and ask him to forgive you for whatever that thing that you think was so bad that it puts you beyond the the reach of God. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is dying in your unrepented sin and unto your dying breath saying, I don't need anything from God. I am good enough on my own. That's what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Does everyone understand? Like, I don't want a single person to leave here today thinking that they are already damned because of something they did in the past. If that's the case, then Jesus' death on the cross is meaningless. If he cannot save us, then his work meant nothing. But every one of us is so loved by God that if we repent, he will save us. Even those men in that story, those scribes, they had hardened their hearts to Jesus so hard that they said he is evil. He gets his, he gets his power from the devil. But even them, if they had humbled themselves and sought forgiveness and sought restoration, he surely would have saved them because there is no sin that his grace and mercy cannot cover. And you too, if you still have breath in your lungs, no matter what sins you have that you need to bring to the feet of Jesus, can and will be forgiven and saved by Jesus if you repent from your sins, which means turn away and follow him. And I'll tell you this too. 
if you have concern, if your heart is worried that maybe you are unsavable, then you're, you're good because you're still worried about it. You have people that are, are, are in that state, they have hardened their hearts so hard to God, they're not sitting around thinking, I hope I'm still savable. They're angry and bitter towards God, and they don't even think about those things. And the Holy Spirit is still trying to get them to come back. If today you have fear or concern that you need to seek Jesus and to repent and to follow Jesus, whether it's just for the first time, or whether it's because you think that you've done something so bad, whatever the situation, if you need to take that step in your life, I'm going to be up here at the end of church. Maybe some of my elders, board members, prayer partners can join me, and we'll just be here. We would love to pray with you. It would be our great honor to pray with you if you were feeling the tug of the Holy Spirit on you today. Let's pray.